You're listening to the podcast of Real Life Church. We love, we live, we relate. on the perspective of the church and understanding that it's not your church, it's not my church, but it's his church. And in this season, we find ourselves that church is definitely in uncharted water. We are kind of walking on shifting sand that is constantly changing beneath our, our feet. The, the season that we're in at the moment is like no other. And so it's, I think it's important for us to have some dialogue about what you, what I, are doing in the, in the confines and the, the greater pe- uh, perspective of what church is. And sometimes maybe what I'm not doing that I should be doing in the season. I think there's a, a, a definite need for some clarity. And that's why having the apostolic and clear prophetic word is so important, not just for our, our, our individual lives and not for us, just for our families, but what is it, how do we fit into a piece of puzzle in the greater picture of what Holy Spirit and Father God are doing in our city and in our nation at the moment. I think so often we've seen the, the fragmented church and we've seen old paradigms. And I think the, in this season, we're going through a stage where we've got so many, um, so many churches trying to do a new thing, but we still have an old wineskin. And I think that you know, most of my early development leadership training it's all about wine and wineskins. And those who have been in the same circles as I have for a long time will, will, will understand all of that. But on Friday night, we, we, we stood underneath a, a banner. And I'm going to, oh, I'm going to try and do this. We, we stood underneath a, a banner called Following Jesus on the side of the motorway in Pretoria. And just now I'll try and put the, a, a picture of that banner up on my, on my screen for you. And there's this huge, huge, banner on the side of the road and other side of the tour that says follow Jesus and it's so amazing because even as some of the military and members of parliament and presidential flights <coughs> flights come into land they come into <coughs> into Bartostrum um, base and they see this huge sign follow Jesus but my question is are we truly following Jesus because Jesus is never standing still and again, that's why we need the apostolic prophetic voice to help us know where it is that Jesus is going. So the apostolic prophetic voice says to us in picture form that we're going to get to a T-junction in 200 meters. We're going to get to a T-junction in two days. We're going to get to a T-junction in two hours, in a week's time, in six weeks' time, and Jesus is turning right. If you want to follow Jesus, you must prepare now and slow down so that you turn right where Jesus is turning right to be able to follow Jesus. So you don't go careering off the end of the T-junction or turn left and head where Jesus is going in the opposite direction. So we, we need to make sure that we are also not overtaking Jesus. You know, I think so often we, we, we're so gung-ho to get there, we're so gung-ho on, on maybe doing good on or maybe doing right, that we think, well, I just know exactly what it is that we're doing, and we put foot to the floor, and we overtake Jesus. And before we know it, we are following Jesus when he is behind in our rearview mirror. But not only can we not overtake Jesus, 
we can't lag behind him. So that we're living in a season that Jesus was in so long ago. Even if Jesus was there last week, and that's not where we're supposed to be, we're missing out on some of the potential of what Holy Spirit wants for us. We don't worship the cross. The cross is empty. We don't worship Jesus on a cross. Now, Jesus isn't the cross, but we honor what Jesus did. But we worship the risen, living, active, intimate God. And so if we're following Jesus, you can't go keep on going back to the past. It's not about the cross. It's not about Jesus on the cross. It's not about, oh, it's not about all those things. We've got to have our identity secure and say, I know what it is that Jesus is doing, and we're living in the moment. I think it's so often to keep up with Jesus. Now, Jesus is an adventurer. You know, I try and think of adventurers today, you know, and even, even folks like Mark gives me a stitch when I go out and outreach with Mark. But there are people like the Bear Grylls and, you know, and sometimes even Alexander or, or others. You know, in, in a theological sense, you know, Don Hutchie is an adventurer and he's going out there and he's, He's forging away in thinking and, and identity and understanding scriptures that so many of us are just so far behind and in so many different things. The reality is that if you're following Jesus, often it is difficult to keep up. The reality is God is not worried and God is not stressed in the fact that the church is in this shifting, ever-changing arena at the moment. I really don't think that Jesus is sitting at the right-hand side of the Father, chewing his nails, living in anxiety and worry, because he's not too sure what on earth is happening with his church at the moment. When Jesus called Peter, that's called the, the most unlikely disciple, when Jesus called you and when Jesus called me, because I think you and I often share the same podium with Peter, you know, a little bit of dartiness and, and everything in there. But Jesus wasn't worried that his church would thrive. And Jesus is still committed to leading us, if only we are willing to follow. You know, friends, we, we can't listen to the noise around us more than we listen to the voice within us. Too many people are listening to the rhetoric that's out there but not understanding the resonance of Holy Spirit in here. This morning I'm going to share a little bit from Luke 15. And Jesus tells one of the most defining passages of Scripture, and I want you to say that this is a story about his church. This is the, Johan, you might need to help me out here. This is the voice and place. This is the pop and source of Scripture. If anyone gets to define his church, it's Jesus. Jesus talks about lost sheep. Jesus talks about a lost coin. And Jesus talks about a lost son. It's a story of a father teaching <coughs> and two sons. One second, I'm just going to... So I was just asking for a glass of water. I don't have Tracy here putting bottles of water in front of me in the, in the morning. 
Chris, <coughs> all right, here, here comes my new Tracy. Oh, thank you. I just don't have an Anne. I'll get this right. Thank you. So this is a story about a father and two sons. And in Luke 15, Jesus 11, Jesus continues, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the state. So the father divided his property between them. In the culture of the day, to ask for your inheritance early whilst your father alive was like saying to your father, I wish you were dead or you are dead to me. It's one of the most dishonoring things that a son can do would be to ask for his inheritance early. But the father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. And in verse 13 we read, A few days later the young son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. Now, for me this is profound. Because here you have a son, and all he wanted was to belong. The thing that he really wanted was to belong. So what he did is he took all his belongings, and he headed off to an unknown place where he didn't belong. Carry on in verse 13. And there he wasted all his money on wild living. Now, the Hebrew word for wild living is corona. Now, I'm only joking, but I did say I would get the word corona into my message this morning. So, verse 14. About the time this money ran out, a great famine. You like that one, Jason? About this time, his money ran out, and a great famine swept over the land. It sounds like what we are going through at the moment. And a great famine swept over the land and began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the field to feed the pigs. The man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the highest servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying. The amazing thing to me is that so often there is a famine in our lives that brings us back to Father. There's a famine in our lives that brings us back home. There's a famine in our lives. There's a season of famine that draws us back to where we should be. It draws us back to God. And some of us, I would suggest, are experiencing a famine in our lives at the moment. It may be a relational famine. It may be a financial famine. It may be an emotional famine. And if some of us look back and thank God for the famines that we have had in our lives that have brought us into a place of breakthrough, that we have a testimony that, Lord, I was in a situation of famine, I think it may even be a famine of loneliness, often. And through that famine, as I came back to you, I found a foundation for breakthrough. And I think sadly that there are people who are going to go through a famine to be able to see the hand of God work through through their lives. And the amazing thing, and this is what I do so often, he prepares a speech in his mind. 
how many of you prepare a speech in your mind because of what's going to happen? And so the son says, okay, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back home. And this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against both heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please you take me on as a hired hand. And so often we, we, we rehearse things in our minds. And we start to think and we plan and we have negative thoughts. And, and so this son started to have a conversation in his mind about what he was going to do and what his, he's going to ask his dad for. He's going to just be a hired hand. And I want to suggest that so many of us in our situations and seasons of famine ask for the lowest common denominator. If only I can have the crumbs underneath the table. If only I can be a hired hand in your family. I don't want my rightful place. I don't want who I am. I just want somebody else's crumbs under the table because I'm not worthy. What I've done, in my view, has broken off the relationship and broken the identity of who I was. And reality, friends, is so often when we plan these things in our mind, we plan the worst case scenario, and it never pans up as bad as we think. I'm going to come back to that within the context of church and family and identity. So in verse 20, carry on. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. And if I was in the venue at the moment, I'd be running up and down on the stage and going, Now I can see him out there. And he embraced his son and he mocked. He kissed his son. There was probably something Italian or Greek. Anton, it was He kissed his son as he came in. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's going back to the <clears throat> rehearsals of what he had, had said. His father said to his servants, Okay, so my, I'm just going to press pause for the recording for a second. So, so now I don't know where I was after, after that. So the son Dogs home, the dad runs out and the son says, I'm no longer worthy. So the father said to the servants, quick, go bring the finest robe in the, la- in the house and put it on him. Now the finest robe in the land, the finest robe in the house, would have been the robe that belonged to the father. So it would have been the father's own robe that he gave to his son. And the father says, go and get a ring and sandals for his feet. And, and sandals reaffirm the identity because slaves wore, wore barefoot. And so the father saying, immediately, I'm restoring your identity. I'm reaffirming, I'm, I'm giving your identity back. Put sandals on his feet and put a ring on his finger. So immediately the father gave him identity and authority because the ring marked authority. It was a sign of authority. And so the father empowers the son from the moment and the minute he comes home. The father doesn't punish him. 
The father doesn't wait for him to earn it. The father doesn't ask him to go through a six-year basic introductory course into identity, module 101 and 201. The father doesn't send him off for six-week repentance and healing and etc., etc., and make him jump to the hoop to be able to prove his sincerity. God has the most beautiful way of empowering us before we are ready for it. At the moment we come home to Jesus, the Father gives us our shoes. He gives us our ring. We don't earn it. We don't do courses. We don't deserve it. The Father embraces us and gives us everything. And then we carry on. And kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and now he is alive. He was lost. But now he's found. And then this is one of my beautiful scriptures. It says, so the party began. I must go to that part. Now we used to go, now spin the fattened lamb, give him a robe and give him a, a ring. My son has returned. And the scripture says, and so the party began. And we know this was a phenomenal party because we know it's a Greek party. How? Because the father ran out and kissed the son. So there was lots of food and this was a mammoth party. I love the fact that one of the most riveting stories that Jesus tells about his church has something to do with a party. Imagine if most churches and most believers stop spending so much of their time on religion and spend more of their time partying. Imagine if we had a party every week. Imagine if we had a celebration every time somebody set foot on our patio. But Jesus shares the shares story. It's about a son who comes home it's about a father who runs to greet him. And it's about a party that follows. I love the fact that the father had been preparing, because he had been preparing for the fattened lamb. So even in this season, the father had been preparing. The father had been proactive. He had been pacing on the patio, preparing a fattened calf. He wasn't idle. He wasn't in neutral. Why he waited that one day his son may or may not come home. They sat in a car and preparing for a party long before the son even made the decision to return home. So here's the story. The picture of a family. It's a picture of fathers and mothers. I'm sharing this in the context of church because we can't talk about family enough. And we can't talk about fathering and mothering enough. Because this is what the story is not saying. I think too often we read through scripture through the lens of our Christianese. Sometimes we read through the lens of scripture through our hurts 
I have to jump through hoops, so you should jump through hoops. I took a long time to be accepted, therefore a long time is an okay tough thing. Sometimes I think we think that family is all about getting people into church. Maybe we think that it's all about evangelism and feeding the poor. It's about getting people through the door and then closing the back door before they can run away. If you can't get them to church, just at least share a podcast with them. Oh my goodness. Let's just send them more and more clips of what they should be doing to know the way, the truth, and my life. We sometimes think that God revolves around the church. This other way around. The church should revolve around God. When Jesus told the story about his church and what it should look like, it wasn't about gatherings. And therefore, we don't have this unhealthy preoccupation with rushing back to a Sunday morning. When Jesus spoke about the church, it wasn't about gatherings. It was about fatherings and motherings. It was about sons and daughters. When Jesus spoke about his church, it was about families. It was about relationships. When Jesus spoke about his church, it was about celebrations. It was about a party. It's not about getting people to church. It's about getting people to God. It's not about getting people to a place before a pastor so that a pastor can pastor. It's about a father who's created an environment with so much love and so much belonging and so much potential for the sons and the daughters to come home. The most important thing for you and I is to create a celebration and environment for sonship and daughtership, for identity, empowerment, and authority. So as I finish off the intro into what I'm going to be sharing about coming up, it's not about sons and daughters coming home. Sons and daughters coming home does not equal gatherings. Sons and daughters coming home should equal fatherings and motherings. As a friend, as we move into more and more of being able to really know the heart of God and to follow him, to not overtake Jesus and not be left lagging behind. How are we in this season of famine? Be it personal or projected, or for others. How are we positioning ourselves as the celebratory, empowering, glorious environment that when sons and daughters come home to Christ, when sons and daughters come home to the proper church, to the true church, when people return to real life, 
What are we doing to position ourselves that it's not about a gathering, but it's about the glorious person of Jesus? How do we welcome them home? How do we follow Jesus? They'll ensure that we portray the family, the community, and the church that he wants us to, to have. Our responsibility in this season is to prepare the second calf, to get a rope ready and to get a ring ready, that those who come back home, for those who just change direction, that we are ready prophetically and in every which way to be able to run after them and say, sons and daughters, I am so glad that you are home. Here is a robe. Here is a ring. Here is a celebration. This is where you belong. Thank you for listening. 